Hello everyone and welcome to the October 25th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Let's get started with our litigation report. The WCAB panel decision of Joaquin Cortez versus Frucon Construction Corporation provided some guidance on use of the Olga V adjustments to the rating formula. Here's what happened. The work comp judge issued a finding of 54% permanent disability purportedly based on the principles in Olga v. versus City and County of San Francisco. A DFEC adjustment was made in the rating formula based upon the vocational report and testimony from Mr. Simon, a vocational expert. Simon believed that the injured worker had no future earning capacity and therefore used the number zero for future earnings in the Olga v. formula. Simon included the effects of a prior back injury, inability to speak English, and limited job skills as factors limiting the worker's ability to ever work again. The WCAB panel rejected Mr. Simon's reasoning. The panel said that Simon's use of 0% earning capacity based in part on the non-industrial factors of applicants being monolingual and nearly illiterate were inappropriate. His reasoning was also flawed because it was based on a prior industrial back injury. Labor Code Section 4664A says that the employer shall only be liable for the percentage of permanent disability directly caused by the injury arising out of and occurring in the course of employment. The opinion of Mr. Simon was not consistent with this standard. The permanent disability finding of the work comp judge was reversed and the panel found instead that the injury caused permanent disability of 13%. The state fund did not succeed in their effort to restrict the distance an applicant may travel for treatment with an MPN physician. Here's what happened in the case of Brian Minucci versus State of California Department of Transportation and the State Compensation Insurance Fund. An expedited hearing was calendared on the issue of entitlement to medical treatment. The issue to be decided was whether or not Labor Code Section 4600 requires an injured worker to treat within a certain number of miles from his residence. The applicant was treating with Dr. Jamazbi, who is on state funds MPN list. This physician was approximately 51 miles from applicant's residence. Skiff attempted to force applicant to select a physician closer to his home and refused to authorize treatment with Dr. Jamazbi. The work comp judge disagreed with Skiff and awarded further medical care with Dr. Jamazbi and the WCAB affirmed this decision on reconsideration. The WCAB panel decision concluded that the reasonable geographic area limitations specified in Labor Code Section 4600C do not apply in the context of an MPN. Neither do the MPN regulations. The regulations allow an injured employee to treat with any MPN physician after the first visit without regard to where that physician may be located. The MPN access regulations do not preclude an employee from choosing to treat with an MPN physician who is outside of those minimum distances. The WCAB noted, however, that this does not necessarily allow an injured worker to recover transportation expenses to a distant physician. And now our fraud report. 
Federal agents shut down a massive Medicare fraud operation in Miami that allegedly netted $83 million in illicit proceeds since 2003. Two South Florida healthcare companies and four owners and senior managers were named in a 13-count indictment. The companies, American Therapeutic Corporation and MedLink Professional Management Group, both of Miami, allegedly billed the Medicare system for mental health services that were either unnecessary or were never actually provided. According to court documents, the company submitted Medicare claims totaling $191 million since 2003. Authorities said it was the largest fraudulent billing scheme ever prosecuted by the strike force. The Miami companies allegedly paid kickbacks to operators of assisted living facilities and halfway houses to provide them with patients. According to prosecutors, some of the patients were paid kickbacks to allow their names to be used in bogus treatment documents. In some cases, therapists were coached to include false references to insomnia or sleep difficulties in patient progress notes. <clears throat> the notes were included to justify referring patients to a related business, American Sleep Institute, for sleep study tests that could also be reimbursed by Medicare. Court documents say the defendants falsified medical reports, including documenting fake symptoms, creating bogus psychiatric evaluations, forging physician signatures, and verifying fictitious treatments that were never given. And now our medical news. California may legalize marijuana next week when voters decide the fate of controversial Proposition 19 and workers' compensation and human resources directors have been wrestling with the broader implications of legalized pot. A central issue has been whether workers' comp should cover the costs of medically prescribed marijuana in the 14 states that have legalized it. In 2003, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that employers can refuse to accept medical marijuana as a reasonable explanation of a positive drug test. In 2005, the court ruled that the federal law, which deems marijuana to be an illegal substance, preempts state law allowing people to use pot. And now the whole debate over medical marijuana is likely to grow into such areas as health care insurance, auto insurance, and workplace safety. From the standpoint of California workers' compensation, the DWC's newly adopted chronic pain guideline offers employers some protection from claims for medical marijuana treatment. Workers' compensation medical treatment must be evidence-based. A starting point for the search for medical evidence is the Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule, or MTUS, which is California's version of the ACOM guideline. One of the newest chapters to the MTUS is the Chronic Pain Guideline, which specifically addresses the use of cannabis for the treatment of pain. The MTUS is clear. The medical use of cannabis is not recommended. The DWC medical director could not find scientific evidence to support any treatment with cannabis. The MTUS is presumed correct by law and very difficult to overcome. It is possible that some scientific evidence can be located to rebut the MTUS on cannabis use, but then this is a heavy burden for a litigant at trial. The new California QME regulations help employers as well. Section 35.5 of the new QME regulations specifically says 
that for disputed issues of medical treatment, a QME or AME must refer to scientifically based guidelines to support their recommendation. It is no longer sufficient for a QME to simply and offhandedly say, I think that treatment was reasonable without supporting that opinion by citing chapter and verse from a peer-reviewed scientific guideline. Claims administrators need only send industrial claims for medical cannabis through utilization review. And the utilization review physician need only refer to the MTUS for support if they choose to deny the treatment. Any QME or AME that tries to circumvent the MTUS must find and cite another guideline with better science. Thus, even if Proposition 19 is passed by voters, there should not be an issue for industrial claims, at least until there is some high-quality medical science to support cannabis as a modality for treatment. A new study claims that more than 17,000 doctors and other healthcare providers have taken money from seven major drug companies to talk to other doctors about their products. These payments are not illegal and usually not even considered improper. But the investigation by a journalism group, Consumer Reports Magazine, NPR Radio, and several other publications showed these doctors were sometimes urged to recommend off-label prescriptions of drugs, meaning using them for conditions they are not approved for. And the report points to several studies showing that even small gifts and payments to doctors can affect their attitudes. The group used information from seven drug makers, AstraZeneca, Cephalon, GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson, Eli Lilly, Merck, and Pfizer. Consumer Reports said that some of the companies were forced to disclose this information as a result of legal settlements. Others re released the information voluntarily. It also said that more than 70 other pharmaceutical companies have not disclosed payments made to doctors, although the health care reform law passed in March will require them to do so by 2013. Drug companies often say they pay expert physicians to educate their peers about drugs and conditions. Another new study this week claims that doctors are more likely to prescribe drugs that pharmaceutical companies promote to them. Thus, sometimes patients pay more without always getting the most suitable medicines. The University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia report found that information from drug companies influenced the decisions of doctors and not necessarily in a positive way. The report found that doctors who accepted briefings or other information from drug companies were more likely to prescribe those drugs. 38 studies showed that exposure to drug company information resulted in more frequent prescriptions. Several of the researchers in the study are members of Healthy Skepticism, an international nonprofit research education and advocacy association set up to reduce harm from misleading health information. Their report was published in the US-based Public Library of Science Journal, PLOS Medicine. Another new study led by Dr. Philip Stahel of the University of Colorado shows surgery on the wrong body part or even the wrong patient is still a problem. Insurance records show 
that among some 27,000 adverse events reported by doctors, there were 107 cases of procedures done on the wrong part of a patient's body and 25 done on the wrong patient. Dr. Martin McCary, a surgeon at Johns Hopkins University, said that the study points to a major preventable problem. He estimates about 1 in 75,000 operations go wrong every year in the U.S., sometimes with fatal consequences, as in the case of one patient in the new report who died following surgery on the wrong lung. McCary also said that in the world of the health care system, these problems rank low compared to other harms, but ranks high in terms of preventable harms. The researchers led by Dr. Philip Stehel of the University of Colorado found significant harm in 73 cases out of 132. Communication errors were involved in all the patient mix-ups for wrong site surgery. Other causes were errors in clinical judgment and lack of a short briefing session before the procedure. Mix-up problems persist despite the widespread use of a protocol called timeouts to ensure such briefings. McCary said that it's not as simple as adopting a checklist. It requires a change of culture since there are times when operating staff are afraid to speak up when they perceive an error. And now in financial news, the WCIRB reports that California workers' compensation insurance rates increased 3% on average during the first six months of 2010. Meanwhile, written premiums increased to $5.2 billion during the first six months of the year, which was a 16% increase over the prior year. <clears throat> While rates climbed 3%, they still remain 62% below the pre-legislative reform high reached in 2002. The WCIRB's information is based on data reported by insurers that wrote nearly all of California's workers' comp premiums. The WCIRB also estimated that insurers' ultimate 2009 accident year combined ratio would reach 125%. Combined ratio is a measure of profitability used by an insurance company to indicate how well it is performing in its daily operations. A ratio below 100% indicates that the company is making underwriting profit while a ratio above 100% means that it is paying out more money in claims than it is receiving from premiums. Thus, a combined ratio of 125% is very disturbing. Marsh reported in their financial update that soft commercial insurance market conditions persisted through the third quarter of 2010. Intense competition and overabundance of capacity continued to define the commercial insurance market. Overall, property and casualty rates declined an average of 6.1%. General liability rates declined an average of 6.7%. Workers' compensation rates declined an average of 5.3%. And auto liability rates declined an average of a tenth of a percent. Marsh concluded that barring some unforeseen event, the property market's abundance of capacity will likely compel insurers to further decrease rates into 2011. And in other news, the state fund is searching for a new CFO. 
Jay Stewart has resigned as Chief Financial Officer of the State Compensation Insurance Fund. Mr. Stewart has taken a new position as Chief Financial Officer of Redwood City-based Kamiko Insurance Company. Tom Rowe, the State Fund CEO and President, said that Jay had contributed significantly to State Fund's successful transformation over the past two years. Prior to joining State Fund, Mr. Stewart worked for both the Texas and Mississippi Public Utilities Commissions, Johnson & Higgins Insurance Brokers, Argonaut Insurance Company, California Casualty Management Company, and Majestic Insurance Company. A search for a permanent SCIF CFO replacement has begun. Meanwhile, Daniel Sevilla will serve as State Fund's interim CFO. Mr. Sevilla is most recently a Vice President of the Automobile Association Interinsurance Bureau in Walnut Creek. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports by using your iPhone or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks again for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for some more news.